Well, in uh, 1539, there was an English preacher by the name of Hugh Latimer. He was a Protestant, and uh, the Catholic Church didn't like that very much. And so he was tied back-to-back with Nicholas Ridley, who was a servant in his church, and they were burned at the stake. And as the flames were rising, this is what Latimer is reported to have said. Be of good comfort, Brother Ridley. That's the man he's tied back-to-back with. And play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust, never shall be put out. Uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing that a small thing can bring about some, some great change, some, some small circumstance, even one person or two people bring about some great difference uh, later on down the line. I don't know if you guys, if you didn't live in Colorado in 2002, you won't remember this, but maybe it was national news either way. The Haman fire in 2002 uh, was this, now the second largest uh, wildfire in Colorado. And uh, I remember um, I, was in, uh, I was in college, and so we, we were in Idaho, and we had come home and, uh, for the holidays, and it was just like the ash was just falling on the cars and stuff. And if you remember what happened to start this fire, it was uh, a forest service worker, and she was uh, reportedly burning the note of her estranged husband, her ex-husband, and uh, so she burned that, and... In the, uh, in the woods, uh, knowing better while there was a full ban on burning, and of course that started the forest fire. And so this morning, uh, we're sort of transitioning to, to look at how is it that Stephen's life sort of affects this great, uh, this great outpouring then of God growing the church in the gospel. And um, so we, we talked about this in, in terms of conflict last week. I introduced that to you, that the fact that we are, we're in a conflict, whether you, you think you are or not, and there's only two sides in the conflict. There's kingdoms at war, and when we're confronted with this reality, um, we're, we're, not so, we're not so sure that as opposition comes full force or that we actually experience it in a more tangible way, perhaps, than we're used to. Um, it seems to take us by surprise. And um, I, I don't know how much more I could do to try and like lay the groundwork for preparation, but I, it's more of a, um, we should at this point um, know just from the course of history, from what scripture teaches us, um, that this is what should be expected. And so there's a strategy uh, for how we should operate. There's preparations that we should make, and they're against our natural inclination. Our natural inclination whenever we meet opposition is to do that measurement, that, that valuation of uh, should I go along to get along? Should I um, you know, just try to preserve life and limb here in this case? And um, we're actually told not to do that. So um, what happens here for Stephen being martyred and the, the martyrs as the case all throughout uh, church history, what seems like something that is uh, objectively only negative in measurement. It's, it's outwardly bad, it's evil, it's, it's sin that brings it about, seems to, uh, seems to be that way from our senses, but God is always using these things for his purposes to spread the gospel. So while we should expect opposition, and when we meet it, we should be faithful in the face of it, we should know that it's never um, only evil. There's, it's, it's never only purposeless. Uh, God always has something bigger that he's executing or that he's bringing about through these things. So Satan inflicts attacks and losses or tries to, but these things always wind up being uh, an impetus or a greater um, cha- change agent for what God has planned and brings these things out. I think we should call this the gospel judo. 
right? In judo, as the martial arts discipline is to use your opponent's weight and momentum and power against them by leverage. And so what happens is as the church is attacked, God has some greater purpose in, in mind and he turns that thing around and he uses it to grow the kingdom. So whatever Satan means for evil, God always uses and intends for good. Let's pray and see what the Lord would teach us today in his word. Father God, you're good. Uh, we trust this morning that you do have purpose in um, what we experience, what we're brought through, and um, God, I just ask that you would use this time to not um, just give us new thoughts in our head, not new ideas to, um, to think about, but um, ways that we should live, places that you've called us to obedience, and that you would use this time to um, strengthen our spines and um, embolden our hearts and fill us with your spirit so that we can be um, the light in the dark places wherever you send us and however you get us there. So Father, I pray that you would speak this morning through uh, the vessel. That's, I'm, I need to decrease and that you would increase would be my desire. So Father, uh, speak through me, keep my lips from air, and uh, just prepare us as your people to hear and receive what you would give. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, uh, we'll just be in verses 1 through 4, uh, sort of backtrack to verse 1 from last week, and uh, ending in uh, 4, uh, chapter 8, and so I hope you're there. We're talking about today the, the effects of being scattered, uh, but the purpose of that, be, that scattering happening in the persecution is indeed to gather. So what seems to be maybe like counterintuitive as uh, breaking apart and, and dispersing uh, would, would perhaps be bad for the church. It ends up actually being good for the church. It is exactly as God intended it to be. And so I'll remind you, just because it's been several weeks now, that Stephen's um, testimony, uh, the content of it before the council, it, did, it made a lot of um, arguments. So to reduce it to him saying, well, this was the main point, uh, would be an oversimplification. But one, one sub-theme, if you want to think about that way, one of the undercurrents of what Stephen was presenting was the decentralization of God's people, right? So whereas uh, the Jews um, had experienced God as one who brought them to a specific land where he was in a specific place in the temple, right? There was only a certain people who served God uh, as the intermediate. That was the priesthood, right? So in Stephen's um, presentation to the council and to anyone who else would be listening and hear his testimony was to say that God was always um, outside of the bounds of your expectation. He was in a land that you weren't in before you were there. He brought you out of a land that he was in before you were there. He was with you while you were in these foreign lands. Um, when you wanted to build the temple, uh, when Solomon, remember, wanted to build the temple, he said, am I, you know, a man that I'm um, served by human hands? He's not a man that is uh, served by human hands. And so the essential idea is this, that in Christ and now through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God has explicitly now decentralized that thing. It no longer has to be restricted to one specific place, one specific people, one specific area. And so the kingdom of God now is grown and served and um, increases not by building a bigger city with a bigger tower and a higher throne to invite people into, but by God's people being the city that's dispersed out into the world and gathers new people. That's, that's God's design purposes for scattering uh, by the means of scattering. And so the kingdom is expanding and recapturing, if you want to think of it this way, 
new territory through people. Not just like physical land, but peoples and nations. And so the church is a people who now gather together. We get together and we scatter on purpose with a purpose. And we do this regularly uh, as we meet for church, but then there's like a bigger picture uh, scattering that happened here in the early church out of Jerusalem. So let's look at it together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. It says that Saul approved of his execution, that being Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And it says, devout men buried Stephen, and they made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, and he committed them to prison. And those that were scattered went about preaching the word. So um, the, the first part of this, we, we already know that Saul was um, not the, the agent. He's just a figurehead representing an opposing kingdom to God's kingdom here. And he's the one that's approving of the church. And it says on that day. On that day, on the day that Stephen was martyred, that this great persecution broke out against the church. And so uh, we're, not to, we're not to take this to mean uh, that um, this all happened on one day or all of this was accomplished on one day, but rather that Stephen's execution, which was not actually carried out by the council itself, but by the people. Okay, keep, keep that in mind for just a second. It's not the council, the Sanhedrin, that did the stoning. It was a crowd of people that rushed in and carried him, remember, outside the city and stoned him. And so um, this is now a key uh, event. It's a turning point. So in the day of, right, of, of Stephen's execution, it becomes this turning point towards uh, a negativity uh, in Jerusalem towards the people. And so on that day is, uh, is, Mark, is, is making this line of Mark uh, beyond which everything seems to have changed. There's a political slogan. Maybe you've heard it. Uh, it's attributed to Marxism. I don't know if it's appropriately Karl Marx's saying, but you've heard, never let a crisis go to waste. Yes? Have you heard this? In the, at least in the political realm. In other words, a crisis presents an opportunity to make dramatic changes that suddenly uh, and, and uh, abruptly come about that otherwise people may be uh, unwilling to consider or um, consent to. So just an easy example of this is when 9-11 happened. Uh, suddenly there was a people that we hadn't thought about ever before in our lives, a religious ideology uh, that happened. And uh, because of 9-11, we were presented with some, some opportunities and it made a dramatic shift in the way that uh, America does security and uh, what you do when you get to the airport and overall surveillance of your lives. And so I hope that you've all gotten your assigned NSA agent uh, Christmas gift for listening to you ramble all year about your cats, uh, making sure that you're not a terrorist. That's a joke because maybe, I don't know, maybe they are assigned and they do have to listen. But um, So here's the deal. Uh, a point of crisis, uh, never being gone to waste, means that uh, somebody seizes on the opportunity. An, an, opportunist, an opportunist sees an opportunity uh, in crisis to either gather power away from uh, people who are willing to consent at that point to take it or to wield or um, to gain favor. And this strategy, when it occurs, wields our own fears and our insecurities and leverages them against us, right? So when, when uh, there was a terrorist attack on our own soil, suddenly we were terrified that perhaps any airplane at any point is going to be a problem, right? And so we're willing to consent to extra searches and different uh, standards than previously were in place. And do you see how you're ceding some power away in favor of hopefully averting another crisis moment, right? And so your, your fears and your insecurities are used against them, against 
us and uh, against any time this happens. And so um, we say, yes, well, we're willing to give up whatever it is that you're asking for, whatever it takes, so, so long as I don't have to experience that thing again. So when your home is broken into, you're much more likely to upgrade to the platinum package with ADT, right? They say, if you don't want this to happen again, we'll make sure that, you know, we're going to monitor your premises, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're much more willing to consent to these kinds of things. And so the more dangerous or threatening the crisis appears, the more traction and the more power can be seized. In this case, the crisis was manufactured as Stephen was brought up on charges as a representative of a, a group, a faction of people who were a threat to the Jewish way of life, the Israel's um, way of being, right? He was, he was a threat to uh, the temple. He was going to tear down the temple. He was blaspheming Moses and the law, and he was going to change all of the traditions that were handed down. So Stephen is representative now of a threat, and that fear was seized on, and that explains the dramatic change then from a people who, um, it was just a chapter ago, right? We're reading about how it's the Sanhedrin. It's the high council that's afraid to do anything uh, against the, the church, anything against the apostles for fear of retribution of the people. Remember that was what was going on. They wanted to do something, but they were afraid if they did anything further than warn them and beat them that, uh, that the people would turn on them. And now that, that whole thing is now turned on its head because Stephen's able to be presented as this threat and the group that he represents is now a threat to our way of life. And that turns the tide, if you will, of public opinion. And so this is why we see at first mob justice. That's what happened. This is not a, um, this is not, um, so, so Israel had lost the right of um, uh, capital punishment. Oh, that was only Rome's doing. That's, we see that play out in the Gospels. That's why they bring Jesus to Pilate so that he would pronounce this capital punishment. So they, they weren't allowed to do this. So what happened to Stephen is, is truly a, um, it was against the, the laws of not just the land, but also against um, the laws of of the Jews. And so that's why uh, it's sort of interesting here. If you look in verse 2, it says that there was um, devout men buried Stephen. That devout men is not, uh, that's not the church. Uh, every time that phrase appears, it has to do with those that still practice the way of Judaism. And so it's the Jews uh, that were um, sort of um, subversively um, t carrying out the burial rites for uh, Stephen almost as a, a civil kind of protest. And so what we see here is that persecution is to be hated. It's to be alienated and, and to be uh, uh, separated apart from the group. It literally means to be chased away. And it brings about suffering. And this is exactly what we're prepared for, or what the apostles and the church should have been prepared for at this moment. This is exactly what Christ predicted and promised, that those who would follow him and that those who would keep his word um, would experience this kind of trouble. He did not promise favor. He did not promise popularity, ease, and love, but rather he guaranteed just the opposite. He guaranteed that we would be hated because the world hated him first. So Jesus is very explicit, not just to warn us that this was coming, but he also equipped us and he instructed us for victory. This is why he said, look, you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to be in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the whole end of the earth. But wait, wait until you have something specific, until you're clothed with power from on high, until you have the Holy Spirit that will help you walk through these things faithfully. And so we need a theology then that includes what Jesus said it should include, which is suffering for the purpose of the kingdom. And suffering not just with, a, with, with no end in mind, but with a, a designated purpose, with hope. With a purpose for us, for God's kingdom, and for God's people. 
So persecution, though it is a painful process, and we don't necessarily try to seek it out and look for it and incite it, it has always been a tool that Satan tries to use to destroy the church, which ends up actually growing and uh, increasing the church. He uses it to try and fight against God's people, but much like uh, just a few embers from uh, one note being burned can start a large forest fire, so too this is what happened when Satan tries to stomp out a small group of people and it increases and multiplies that effect. And so I want you to see this morning that any persecution that you come about, whether it's like you personally or the church collectively, um, it's doing something in you. It has a purpose. So persecution does um, several things. It prepares us for something. It produces in us something and it, uh, it, it works through us. It proves or tests us and it perfects us. And whenever it's referred to, it's always, it's always supposed to be a joyful experience, which is, again, so counterintuitive. But I, I want to give you um, uh, scriptures that uh, explicitly state this so that uh, you know it's not just my interpretation of what I think you ought to do. So in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this is Paul talking about um, the experience of, of what we have when we, when we have a personal trial or personal affliction. And he says this, for this light and momentary affliction is it's preparing us for something. It's, it, that's, a, that's a future-looking payoff. It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, not to the experiences that we have now, not to the opposition that we face, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means they're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal, or they're more lasting than whatever it is that you're experiencing right now. Whatever suffering or trial that you are in, that's, that's temporal, that's going to go away. And no, no matter how badly they try to hurt your flesh and blood, that's ultimately not where your hope lies. And so Paul says that whatever we experience, it's preparing us for this eternal, he calls it an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. He has to leave it there because we can't even understand why that can possibly outweigh what it is that we experience. In Romans 5, uh, we're told um, that we should rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So uh, this is affliction, trial, persecution is producing something in us. It produces endurance. And, and when we go through that and it produces endurance, then endurance, endurance produces something else, which is character. And then character produces something else, which is hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. So persecution prepares us for an eternal weight of glory. It produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. And it also proves something in us uh, or tests, if you want to use that word better. So in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, 6 says this, in this you should rejoice. You should rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials or tests or afflictions. So that the proven genuineness, that's the, that's the tested version of it. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is refined by fire, may, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So persecution prepares us for an eternal weight of glory. It produces ultimately hope in us. It, um, it proves our faith that is more precious than gold that is eternal. And then in James 1, we see this. Count it all. Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, you know that the testing of your faith, again, the proving of your faith, the trying of your faith, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. And that word perfect there doesn't mean like without blemish. It just means complete. 
perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that by going through things, you, you experience not just only good, not just only success, not just only um, ease and, and love, but you are made perfect by experiencing difficulty and hardship because it forces you to trust for something more, trust for something better, to actually exercise your faith. And then First Peter piles it on in chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You can think of it this way. He says, be happy because it proves that you actually belong to God. And that by enduring those things, that you possess God's spirit. It actually rests on you when you're going through these things. And so our expectations of what we should experience and what we should look for as a church should be radically shaped by this kind of language. Instead of more what we tend to do is focus on the first few little um, sections of Acts that we've walked through and use that as our expectation of what the church should be like. Peter at Pentecost, right? You know, 5,000 people are saved and then, you know, 3,000 people are saved and signs and wonders and they're released from prison and there's lots of priests coming for, to the faith and there's favor in the city. It's like win, 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 win right? And at this point, what your expectations would be if it's win, 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 with, you know, the slip and a beating there, that they rejoiced after they were beaten, right? So they get out of prison, then uh, they were beaten, remember, and they rejoiced. So anyway, you hit a wall, and your inclination then is to believe that this is not part of the plan, I would think, right? Win, 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 we hit a wall, and you're either expecting this to either result in something something greater like getting released from prison or that this is not going according to plan. So I've tried to warn us away from the idea that Acts uh, is a, a prescriptive book of how we should try to do church. It's not a prescriptive book of how to do church. It is a description of how the church came about and how it was spread and how the gospel goes forth with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so Acts for us needs to be um, viewed in light of what it is. So there are aspects and characteristics of God's people that we can identify, but if we turn that into the step-by-step model for church, we will do several things. One is we'll truncate the, the mission. We, we will see it only as the, the need to gather and make sure our doctrine is just so and make sure our prayer meetings are, are well attended and, uh, and, and that we're well thought of inside of the city. And so you see that by, by limiting your scope of knowledge to only what's occurred so far in the good part of Acts, you, you'll, you'll try to, you'll, you'll misdefine the church. So you'll truncate the mission. And Jesus' mission was not stay in Jerusalem until I build up the church real big and then come back, right? He's like, wait in Jerusalem until I clothe you with power. And then the whole thing is going to go out from there to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? And so we must not truncate the mission. We also misunderstand our goals and our purpose, when that happens, right? Our goal is not to just gather, 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 gather until we can get the biggest pile of people we can, but rather to, to gather with purpose so that we can disseminate and scatter from here with, um, with, with mission and purpose. We can also become then disillusioned with our experience. If we only focus on the good stuff and never expect the bad stuff, when the bad hits, you think that either you've done something wrong or God's done something wrong, Right? And you become disillusioned with your experience of the church or your experience of God. And so um, I, just, I want you to broaden your scope now to, to the way that uh, Jesus has promised for this thing to be carried out and uh, embrace that. And so 
just by way of the biblical record and historical evidence itself. I started with that story of the martyr, Hugh Latimer, but just the biblical record itself has God's people by far, on, on the whole, much more full of blood, sweat, danger, toil, opposition, and sacrifice than it's full of celebrated, safety, well-thought-of celebrity getting keys to the city, right? That has not been the case for God's people. It's, it's much more on the side of opposition and, hard, and hardships. Because the church in the West has largely enjoyed maybe a period of favor and ease, this has created like a lopsided church where we, we're, we major on the minor things because we haven't had to major on the major things. So we're really smart. We know a lot, but our heart's often in the wrong place, right? We, we are a people who um, know a lot about God, but uh, oftentimes that doesn't come out in uh, what it is that we do. And so in the absence of explicit persecution, Satan has used um, comfort just as effectively as he could use persecution. Because we, we, we actually volunteer to sit on the sideline in the face of favor. Does that make sense? So be, because we don't face opposition, we, we come to a place of apathy and complacency in the gospel. And so um, I wonder if you did not have the Bible, if you didn't have the Bible as any background and any knowledge, and all you had was the Western church, the American church, and I said, what is, what is, the, what is God given us to do? What is the mission of the church? What, is, what are we supposed to be about? And what, what would you uh, extrapolate? And what would you write down as what the church should probably be doing based on what it is that we do the most of or what we're the best at, right? You, you'd probably come up with some things like, um, well, I think uh, you're supposed to have a pretty poppin' service. Like, you're supposed to gather at least once a week on Sunday mornings. The music should be pretty decent, right? Uh, it looks like they uh, teach uh, for a short while, but they don't go too long because then people get impatient and they miss their lunch appointments. Am I stepping on toes or are you guys just asleep right now? <laughs> I think you would come to some different conclusions than what the Bible says that we should be about as opposed to what it is that we actually spend our time doing. Well, it says here that the persecution caused uh, expulsion, expulsion of the people out of Jerusalem. The great persecution uh, in Jerusalem, and it says they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except for a select few people. So some scattered, most scattered, I should say, and some stayed. Um, I, I just want to point out real quick the longevity of um, some of our expectations about when, when, you, when a ministry is started in a church. Um, just think for a second, like, they appointed all of these uh, deacons, right? And they had this job to feed the feed the widows, and the, the widows being fed at all, and everybody bringing all their property and all that being collected together. Look, that is all now, oh, that is all now gone away. That's all washed out in this moment. And what I told you last week, what most scholars say, this is maybe the period of two or three years. From the point of that being the robust ministry of the church, and now that going entirely away, because the, the church is scattered. So, when we come with this expectation that as, you know, this is what it is that we're supposed to do, sometimes a ministry only serves a purpose for a short while because it serves its purpose and then that's all it's meant to do. And so we kind of tend to hold on to things longer than their usefulness. And so um, some, some scattered and some stayed. Not everyone has the same role in the kingdom. Not everyone's called to the same thing. Not everybody's equipped the same way. 
Just like on a team or in the army or any kind of military service, not everybody serves the same function. Some might be capable to stay amidst difficult circumstances. Some may be unable to leave because where the Lord has planted them. If you think about the, just how the church came about, it's just, just take a big, bigger picture for just a second. Um, the people that are in Jerusalem that constitute the church at this moment, however many thousands of them, originated at the, the, the festival of Pentecost, which was full of sojourners, people that didn't belong necessarily in Jerusalem, but stayed as, as, uh, the, as the Holy Spirit fell, and they were converted then to, to, uh, to Christ. And so they, those are the people that now have stayed in town, if you want to think of it this way, and have been equipped by the apostles' teaching, being a part of the church proper for now two or three years, which sounds strikingly like exactly what Jesus did when he got his disciples, right? And he lived with them for three years, and he taught them, and he equipped them, and then the thing changed. So about three years is what it took to kind of, I think, equip the church for what they needed to do. And so that's what we see, I think, taking place here. And so, um, but they're not, they're not leaving um, their intended purpose. They're going back to their intended purpose, right? Where God placed them was in the life they were living before they wound up in that day, on Pentecost that day in Jerusalem, right? And now being equipped and saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, they're sent back to the place where God has always intended them to do their ministry. And so I want you to see that um, it's not about whether somebody stays or goes, but about where God has placed them in a specific place or for a specific purpose. So um, I don't know I don't know what persecution could possibly look like, but I think the the measurement should be something like this. If you cannot remain faithful in staying amidst turmoil or persecution, prayerfully consider the alternative. Some simply, though, wish to leave to try and avoid difficulty, right? I'll just just duck out of here. Maybe as uh, as Jerusalem becomes a hotbed and a difficult place, it says they're dragging uh, men and women out of um, their homes and throwing them in prison. As that becomes an unlivable place, you, you might think, well, I'll just avoid the controversy. I'll just avoid the difficulty, whatever that happens to be in our day. And I'll move away from here. But if you look at the measurement of what um, is actually supposed to be taking place, you, you, you've, uh, you've missed the point because though Jerusalem becomes a hotbed of, of, of persecution proper, um, Samaria and, and Judea is not any more welcoming of a people that uh, are, are looking for some different kind of religious uh, revolution. And uh, we'll, we'll get more into that next week with the difference of cult, clash of cultures. But Samaria does not represent a safe haven. Samaria is unplowed ground. It's hostile territory. It represents a different kind of work, but not no work. Do you, do you, I'm going to make that clear distinction. So don't, don't mistake comfort for, um, for calling. <laughs> don't, don't mistake avoiding uh, difficulty for, um, for God calling you to, to uh, be somewhere else. And it says, so, so uh, now in verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Um, this, this word scattered is uh, interesting. There's two words that, uh, in the Greek that, that you could use to, to come about um, this idea of scattering. So, so one has a definitive negative connotation. It it's means to, like, to break apart and to disperse, to basically destroy, if you want to come down. And that word is scorpizo, which sounds a lot like a scorpion, right? And uh, it also is uh, it's in the same family of words, which is like schizophrenic, right? which has to do with division and being divided up, right? So that can come to nothing and be broken apart for no purpose, but that's not the word that's used here. 
The word that's used here has, has to do with uh, di- diaspora. And it means like to, to be cast out, but it's often used in terms of like agriculture for planting seed. It doesn't have a good or bad connotation, but Luke uses it twice to talk about the dispersion of the church through uh, different places. He, he uh, again in chapter 11, he references what happened here in Jerusalem and the persecution and the stoning of Stephen being the scattering of um, the church into the nations and what um, good purposes were built into that. And so Good or evil is not determined, listen, by the gathering or the scattering. It's not whether you stay or go. It is the faithfulness regardless of whether you stay or go. That's, that's, the, that's what, what's at key here. What, that's, the, that's the key issue. So those who were scattered went about doing the thing that God needed them to do, which was to carry the gospel. They went about preaching the word. And then we see the rolling effects of that ongoing throughout um, the coming weeks. So gathering and scattering are both necessary. Gathering and scattering are both necessary. You can't have this, um, this, this growth of the gospel, the, go- the growth of the kingdom, without the preceding seven chapters of Acts. That They needed that building up. They needed that gathering together. They needed that filling of the Holy Spirit um, because um, God has a plan to use this. And so uh, sending them out before they're equipped, before they're ready, would, would ultimately... Um, disperse into dilution, if you want to say it that way, right? So it'd be to, to cast out seed so far apart and maybe in so, um, so, so rough of ground and, and without any preparation so as that it wouldn't produce any fruitfulness. But um, this word also has been used in the past to talk about the, um, the Jews being dispersed among the nations. And uh, God often used this as a way to judge his people. Uh, when they were unfaithful, they would be conquered by some other whatever world power, and they would be taken into captivity. And then because of that, they would be intermixed, right? They would be diluted down, and the, the potency of, uh, of their faith would be lost. And so they'd always end up dragging idols back with them whenever they finally got the chance to return to, to homeland, right? And so the dispersion can be bad if faithfulness is not held to. But God also sees um, the scattering as a in terms of potential. He sees scattering as, as those who are scattered out in the world who will come to faith, who do belong to him, who have not yet been reached. In John chapter 11, verse 53, he says, the purpose of, um, of this, this, uh, this calling going out into the world is to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's, that's why God is, um, is scattering people to, to collect those who are already scattered. And Peter said in Acts 2 that the promise was to them and their children and all those who are far off. So um, um, God, is, God sees the potentiality of, of what happens when he, uh, when he disperses his people through um, the world for his purposes. Um, my, uh, my dad bought a donut shop when I was, I think I was in seventh grade. And uh, it was not a... Uh, it was a family-run business. We'll leave it at that, okay? And uh, so, so I, did, I learned to do everything in, uh, in this. But um, what was actually fun and enjoyable was making the donuts. And so I, I learned in, uh, in how to uh, make raised and cake donuts. I prefer the raised donuts fresh out of the fryer. And I'm sure I'll die an early death from, from eating so many of those <laughs> right out of the fryer. But... Um, it, so in preparation for these uh, donuts, you, 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 make, uh, you make them and you mix the flour with a good chunk of yeast. And uh, the, you let it rise and then uh, you, you do something interesting here with 
the yeast. Once it's been mixed in and it's kind of a doughy solution, you let it rise for like an hour, and you, you dump it out, and then you punch it all down, and you roll it out, and then you cut up into smaller little batches, and you let those set. And then as you uh, prepare the dough, it's like you, you roll them out again. And so several times you've, you've crushed all of the air, all of the product, production from the yeast out of this dough, but you're dispersing the yeast every time you do this, right? And, it's, and it's, it's making a better donut each time, but we're not done yet because the yeast has one more job to do. After you've, you've let it raise one time, you dump it out, and then you cut it into smaller batches, and then you cut those into your little donut shapes. Those go into what's called a proofer, right? And this is just this crazy, humid, hot environment that causes the last bit of rising to take place, and that's why our donuts were so pillowy and delicious, and then they get fried, okay? Now, I tell you that whole story to tell you this, that, that Jesus said that the kingdom spread would always be something that started small but explosively large, and it couldn't, it couldn't be stopped. It couldn't be contained. So the, the, the better it spread out and the more it spreads, the more it will grow. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, He tells them a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and she mixed it into 30 measures of flour. That's like 50 pounds. So just the the, the picture is this. Tiny little yeast bugs, just a little pinch, worked through 50 pounds of dough. Will make the whole whole, um, batch leavened, if you will. Right? It only takes a little bit for it to go through the whole batch. Dough. And so the, what's, what's at key here, though, is the quality of the leaven and the dispersion of that leaven are both ne- necessary. It needs to actually be, you know, yeast that's not dead. You can't kill it by putting the too hot of water in it. And, and even the pressure and the rolling out and cutting and all that stuff, that doesn't actually, that doesn't, that doesn't kill bacteria, right? And so the experience of, if you want to look at it this way, the trial and persecution of the dough only serves to further the purpose of what the, the yeast is actually doing by being leavened, by doing what it does. So, put those two ideas together. The gathering is necessary, but so too is the scattering, right? And the scattering is only effective if the, if the leaven is doing what it needs to do. So the quality of the leaven and the, the taking care of it is important. So this has a, a long-term picture and a short-term picture. The long-term is that um, wherever it is that we, we're scattered to is the place where God has planted you. Again, I, I just want to remind you that the, the people that ex- are expelled out of Jerusalem, you're like, oh no, they're losing, they're losing house and home. You know, what, what could they possibly do? Remember, most of these people were, were sojourners. They were there for a temporary time. God, God had a purpose for them being there. It served its purpose. And now they're going to the place where he ultimately wants them to be, wherever that happened to be, either back home or in Samaria or Judea, or, and we'll see how those are carried out. And so wherever God has planted you, that is your long-term scattered position, Okay? Wherever God has planted you, that is your long-term scattered position. But then we have the short-term gathering and scattering. That's what we're doing right now. We're gathered. Here we are in our, in our huddle, but this isn't where we stay. And um, scattering in the short-term sense is, uh, has a nearer idea to us, right? So um, this is what we do as a church. So we gather weekly, we worship, we minister to one another, uh, we learn from the Word, we're encouraged. But we're told in Hebrews, this is the very thing that we're not to neglect he says, don't neglect the, the bringing together, the, the assembling of yourselves. That's the gathering part, right? Because if you, if you neglect that, then the quality of the leaven as you go out into the world becomes less and less. You're not as effective as what you could or should be if you miss this. But we seem to think that this little gathering part is the only thing that matters. It's what we major on. 
It's the thing that if you didn't have the Bible and you just looked at what the church is, you would only sort of, sort of look at this thing. And you would come to most of your conclusions based on what happens right now. Would you not? I mean, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm painting with a broad brush, I mean, I kind of care, but I don't. So we seem to think that this gathering is the only beneficial thing, which is odd considering that it constitutes so little of your life. Even if I give you the benefit of the doubt, you spend less than 1% of your one week's worth of time in the gathered church. You spend 99 to 98% of your time in the scattered church. You don't stop being the church. You don't stop being dough. You don't stop being leaven when you leave here. You, you have a purpose. But if the 98 and 99% of your life is without purpose or it's ineffective, that's a problem, Right? But you need both. You need to be here to gather to make your effectiveness good, but you also need then to be effective in the 99 or 98% of your life. So persecution and pressure squeezes us and it pushes us into different realms and different places, but it actually makes us more effective. It spreads out what we're doing. It produces what it's supposed to produce in us. All of the, the, the four scriptures I read to you, it produces something, it proves something, it perfects you. All of that happens through this cycle of gathering and scattering. And so we, we, we need to be careful that we don't, um, we don't become <clears throat> uh, so focused on the gathering part that we major on it and, be, and, and, it, and it kills its purposes. Um, there, was, uh, there, was lots of, there, was, there was lots of time to wait when you're making a batch of donuts because you've got to wait for it to rise several times. And so, you know, uh, during times where I was bored or waiting for something, I would invent new frostings and uh, just see if they tasted good, right? And uh, one time, I thought, I thought, you know what's good is um, I like peanut butter. But we didn't have peanut butter frosting at this point. But we did have peanuts. And so I decided to mix that up with, uh, with just some glaze and just make my own, like, peanut kind of glaze. And um, it, uh, on first taste, it was really good. And uh, I was like, this is pretty delicious. So I decided to eat it. There were no donuts ready. So I just decided to eat it on a spoon. And uh, that was, it, was, it was terrible. It was ineffective because the, the, the gathered church without its purposes, just, just having the clump of something, it seems like it's, it's a good thing, but it's not, right? It's, it's better when it's spread out. Do you see, do you see that uh, it's not all about how tightly we can pack this thing together or how, how many people we can gather here? That's not a win, right? It's, it's how effective are we as we spread out and serve our purposes. And so... Um, the opposite of what Jesus called us to do is to focus on gathering together and make that our only purpose. The Great Commission does not start with get together. It starts with go or and going or as you're going. Going therefore. I don't know how other different I can put that. Going therefore, make disciples of all nations. Right? teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'm with you even until the end of the age, right? That's, that's the Great Commission. And we major on the gather, therefore. <laughs> Encourage one another in your talents. Listen to one guy talk for a little while. <laughs> Maybe remember some of it throughout the week. I don't know what it is that you think the Great Commission consists of, but we end up being the exact opposite of what Jesus called us to do because when we don't scatter effectively, we end up just being uh, stagnant. 
It's corruption. When when fresh water flows into one place and it doesn't flow out, it doesn't have an outlet, it doesn't go somewhere, it doesn't actually water anything, it doesn't go anywhere, it just serves to be a stagnant pond and then it gets gross and undrinkable. Churches should not have the goal to grow as big as possible. I know that's shocking and scandalous, but we shouldn't. It's the opposite of what Jesus calls to do. We should just be diligent to use whatever it is that God calls us to, be faithful wherever it is that he calls us. Why? For this purpose. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, talking again about affliction and trial and suffering and difficulty, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also be manifested in our bodies. You're, you're, you carrying that to other people that already have the same hope as you is not shining a light into dark places. You're, you're shining light on top of light. Right? Light effectively needs to be shined in places where it's needed. That's why Jesus makes the illustration being so foolish. Who lights a candle? Who makes light and then covers it up? It's, it's needed in places that are dark. So go into dark places, wherever it is that God has planted you, in the short term and in the long term. I, I don't know uh, where, where you're supposed to go or where God has long-term plans for you, but in the tomorrow, wherever it is that you go to work and wherever it is that you interact, that's your place of darkness, that you ought to be a light. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now I debated whether or not I should do this, but I'm at the end, so I'll tell you what I think we've turned this to mean. No real authority belongs to me. So strive after popularity. Gather the largest group you can to increase your brand. Don't be unpopular or different from the world. Focus on individual feelings and personal fulfillment. Don't divide or offend with my teachings. Do not expect obedience. Remember, I'm there when the music gives you goosebumps or someone is emotional. P.S. Don't expect victory. I'll bail you out soon. That's the, that's the modern Western American church version of the Great Commission, and I think it's sad. We're gathered with a purpose to scatter with a purpose. God has not forsaken you and scattering you. He's, he's doing it because you, you have a mission. You're, you're, you're on his team. You're, you're kingdom God. And we are given the mission to go be kingdom God out in the kingdom of darkness. And not only that, you're guaranteed victory. There is no darkness that can overcome light. There is no authority of darkness over light. If you shine a light into the dark, have you ever gone, where did my light go? Did you... Have you ever thought, where did the light go? No, the the light always defeats the dark. You have been guaranteed victory that may not manifest in the way that you think it does, which means we must be careful in looking for victories or quantifying victories because sometimes they come by way of stoning and sometimes they come by way of persecution and a church more or less going from 15,000 to about 120, it says. But that's all for God's purposes, and it's all for God's glory. So trust in his goodness, trust in his equipping you and his mission, and that persecution is suffering, trial, affliction are all good for you personally, and they're good for the kingdom as well. Let's pray. Father, you're good. We do thank you.